Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Gail Harriet. She is professor of law at University of San Diego. She has also notably been a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. She's co-edited a new book that is our topic today entitled A Dubious Expediency, How Race Preferences Damage Higher Education. Welcome, Gail. Well, thank you for having me on, Mark. There's an, un, another uh, qualification you have. You were a leader of the 2020 campaign in California to sustain Proposition 209. Why don't you refresh our readers? What was Proposition 209 and what happened last year in, in the 2020 election relative to it? Well, um, it was actually pretty exciting last year, but back in 1996, uh, there was a popular initiative here in California known as Proposition 209. I co-chaired that campaign as well, uh, and our chairman was Ward Connerly, uh, who at the time was the University of California regent. And what Proposition 209 did uh, is that it amended the California Constitution uh, to say the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, color, sex, ethnicity, uh, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public contracting, um, or public education. I think I got the quote right there. Uh, and, you know, that was big news back in 1996. It basically meant that race preferential admissions policies at California universities uh, would be illegal. Um, and it passed a very strong majority. And time went on. Um, and Suddenly, um, this this past year, uh, the California legislature, which is heavily um, heavily democratic, uh, in fact, I, I should say, not even just heavily democratic, they're sort of off the deep end on the left side of the political spectrum these days. Uh, they voted um, to to um, get rid of that in the California Constitution. Of course, they can't do it by themselves. They had to put it um, up for for a vote. And everybody in California, all the, the people that know politics, uh, were just sure that, that uh, it would be repealed. But we put up um, a fight. And even to my surprise, uh, because California had gone so far to the left, I, I thought, well, we'll fight as hard as we can. Uh, but not only did the repeal effort fail, not only did our, our, our efforts to keep the California um, constitution colorblind. Not only were we successful, we were successful beyond our wildest dreams. Um, California voters uh, voted very strongly um, to retain that part of the Constitution. Um, and I think that sent a strong message uh, to the California legislature uh, that voters are not nearly so woke um, as they might have thought. 
uh, California voters are a lot more sensible than people than people realize. And and you know, Kate Gale, I, I I was looking actually by chance last week at Proposition 16, as it was called, and your opponents outspent you about 16 to one. Correct. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it was unbelievable. You know, all the, the, the large corporations were shoveling money um, to, to the Yes campaign. Meanwhile, we were, you know, we had hardly anything. You know, I am not a rich woman. Uh, I'm just not. By nobody's idea of rich would, would mean Gail is rich. I nevertheless am the second largest donor uh, to the No campaign. Uh, and it, what that means is we had a lot of small contributions, um, and we had we had dedicated volunteers um, that you know it, it was really astonishing um, and and to me very heartwarming that there were people who basically would walk through fire uh, to make sure um, that the California Constitution did not repeal Proposition 209. Uh, the majority of our uh, of our volunteers were Asian American. Um, but we had, of course, volunteers of every race and ethnicity. Uh, but but the Asian American group uh, was was very strong. Um, and you know we might not have had any money, but we had the yard signs. You know uh, we had the, the the people with banners. We had we had the car rallies. You know of course this was in the middle of the lockdown. We couldn't have um, you know ordinary political rallies. We had car rallies where we would we would decorate our cars um, and you know drive around and you know through through new neighborhoods. Um, and it, it worked really well. Uh, it did raise our profile. Uh, we didn't have much else going for us other than, than the fact that Californians actually agreed with us. The state should not discriminate on the basis of race, sex, or ethnicity. Now, this was California. Uh, do you think that the mood across the country is the same relative to racial preferences? I think if you look at polls over the decades, uh, the public has always been against racial preferences. Uh, if you simply ask a, a voter, what do you think about affirmative action in very, very broad, you know, vague terms like that, very often the polls will say, yeah, affirmative action is a good idea. But when you make it clear what that means, if you, if you ask voters um, something along the lines of, you know, which of these two, two um, thoughts comes closest to your view, A, uh, that universities should not discriminate on the basis of, of race uh, in admissions, even if that means that fewer minority students uh, will be able to get into that particular school, uh, or do you think that that um, universities should give preferential treatment to minorities, even if that means that some minorities will, will get in um, who otherwise would not have had the academic credentials uh, necessary to get in. Um, and you know, when you make it that clear what we're talking about, uh, the numbers are overwhelmingly uh, against racial preferences. Um, and that has been true uh, from the 1970s when they first started measuring this. It is still true today by about two to one. Um, so this is, this is not a, a slight uh, preference on the part of the American electorate. It's very strong. Um, and it's, it's, it gets stronger the clearer the question is made uh, to them. Okay, this volume. Uh, in the introduction, uh, you note that we are now a half century into this practice. Uh, do you want to name any 
positive accomplishments of the practice? Well, I, I, I can't really say that it has, has had uh, the positive um, effect it has been, you know, that it was intended to have. I don't have any problem with the notion that when people first came up with this idea, uh, you know, they, they were trying to do what they thought was a good thing. Uh, they thought that this would, you know, sort of jumpstart um, things so that students who hadn't otherwise had the same opportunity, um, you know, earlier in life might be able to go uh, to a college that would, you know, would have a, a big name and it would sound 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 impressive. But I think what's happened is actually the opposite, um, that we now have fewer African-American physicians, fewer African-American um, scientists, engineers, um, probably fewer African-American lawyers um, than we would have otherwise had, had students of all races and ethnicities uh, attended the college or university that best matches uh, their academic credentials at the time that they're ready um, to go to college. That you're really not doing students a favor um, if you you take them, you know, into a school where they're going to be competing against students um, whose academic credentials um, are are cut above that. That doesn't mean that that you know they won't they won't catch up at some point. Um, but you're not doing students a favor um, when you you send them to a school uh, where they're not ready for the academic competition. Yeah, I, and and that that jumps a, l- a little bit ahead to the mismatch problem, which you write on later in the book. Yeah, tell us more. What is the mismatch problem? Well, you know, in, in, at one level, it's it's really easy to understand. Um, you know, universities. Um, Tend to to rank themselves by academic, um, you know, academic level. It's really really hard to get into schools like like MIT or Caltech. I mean, those are 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 schools that are pretty much literally for for rocket scientists. Um, and there are a lot of students um, who are really good at math, really good at science, um, and they have a future uh, in math and science. But there's no better way. To, to put the kibosh on that kind of talent than sending them off to, to MIT or Caltech at a point where, where you know, they're not yet ready for it. Um, I have a friend, um, and his daughter uh, is very talented. Uh, she's now a college graduate and gone on to, to bigger and better things. Uh, but there was a, a time, maybe 10 years ago, um, when they were going on a college tour. She was in high school getting ready to apply for college, and she wanted to be an engineer. And she is an engineer now. Um, And they visited a number of these schools, and there was a pattern there. And that was there would be a a very personable minority student um, who would be the the, the face of the school for conducting tours uh, for high school students who were thinking about applying. And they would talk to these students and find out that, yeah, you know, they're going to Caltech, they're going to MIT, but they'd actually switched out of science and engineering and were now majoring uh, in something else, uh, which is fine. That's fine. But these were students that had, you don't go to Caltech or MIT to major in, in English literature. 
um, you know, English literature is a wonderful thing, and we need talented people in those areas, as you well know. Um, but that's not why they go to Caltech. Um, and they'd ended up, they'd been given a preference to get in because of their, their, their racial status. Uh, and the competition had scared them out of science and engineering, and they'd gone into another area. Uh, and that's what happens in the math and science area, that you get students that if they go to a great school, but not quite Caltech, which I think is probably the hardest school to get into in the country, um, they go to that school, the competition is very stiff, um, and they end up majoring in something else. Uh, they end up doing something other than going into to science, going into engineering, going into medicine. Um, and that's a loss, I think. That's you know our top math and science talent. Um, you know, you want to foster that. We need a lot more scientists and engineers than Caltech and MIT can by themselves ever give us. Uh, had they gone to a school, maybe run one rung down, um, they'd have graduated with the degree that they intended to get in the first place. And, and the, one of the issues is a lot of those classes, like any, the STEM classes, the engineering, the, the pre-med classes, those are graded on a curve. Absolutely, you know. Everyone can't get an A in those classes. Um, And, you know, the problem here, um, you know, it's not just racial minorities. It's also legacy preferences. You know, you get somebody uh, whose grandfather went to Caltech uh, and they get in on a preference. Uh, Same thing happens. Uh, They're less likely to, to, to... um, continue in that ambition to have a math or science degree. And I'm talking mainly about math and science here because that's where the empirical evidence is strongest, um, that there have been many studies on this now. Um, and they have shown um, that if you give a student whose ambition is to go into medicine, to go into to, to science, to go into engineering, if you send them to the school um, where their credentials uh, are going to be towards the very bottom of the class, even though, as an ab- in an absolute sense, you know th- they've actually got quite good credentials. You know these are not these are not you know these are not not students who who are going to do poorly in college. If they go into the right college, even a very competitive one, um, they'll do well. But it's possible to be out of one's league, uh, particularly in math and science. So, so they go in and they, they take calculus two at, at a place where all the other kids in the class are, you know, 97th percentile SAT, and oh, they no, end up doing poorly. Not 97th percentile. The other students 99. are 99th percentile. You know, okay. Back. And, <laughs> and, they, so they, and they end up transferring over out of pre-med because it's just too – whereas if they'd gone to a tier – a school somewhat lower, they would have stayed in pre-med good. because – the but still good. But still good. They would have stayed. They would have become doctors. I mean, that 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 would be sort of the 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 broad conclusion, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've looked at numbers, for example, um, for pre meds at Princeton versus Penn State students who've been given preferential treatment, um, such that they are entering a school, Princeton, um, with with academic credentials that put them pretty near the bottom of the class, but still good. These are not dummies. These are smart, smart students. Uh, They'd have been towards the top of the class uh, at Penn State. And guess what? They're more likely 
to, to actually graduate with a science degree and go on to medical school if they'd gone to Penn State. Um, like, take me. I, I think of myself as good at math. Well, if you had put me at Caltech at, with good at math, <laughs> I'd have been out of my league. Um, and I probably would have thought, you know, gee whiz, you know, I'm just, I'm just not the math type. Uh, I might have made a joke out of it, um, but I probably would have washed out at Caltech. But there are a lot of schools, even schools that pe- people think of as really excellent schools, where I'd have been competitive. Um, and okay, you know, you need to go to a school where you can be competitive. Um, students who go to a school where they're going to be at the bottom of the class. And the thing is, you know, some students will outperform their entering credentials, just as some students will underperform theirs. They get to school, you know, they get to college, their parents aren't there to, to keep them, you know, keep their nose to the grindstone and they start having fun. They underperform their credentials. But most students perform in the general range that their academic credentials say. Um, and that means it's important to go to a school where you can compete. And it's not that you are going to be in that groove forever. Students who compete well, you know, can go on to graduate school at perhaps a more competitive school. Um, But it's important not to put students in a situation where suddenly, bam, you know, they're competing against students uh, of a caliber they've not seen before or not seen many of before. And you know, you know, I think of these students, Gail, and you know, they've been recruited by these schools with all these glorious pictures of smiling, happy faces. You will thrive here. We are the most inclusive school. You are. You're going to be on your way. This is the perfect school for you. And then they go in, and that pre-med, you know, organic chemistry, and it starts not to work out very well, and they feel betrayed, don't they? Right. There are so many empirical studies now that show that in the math and science um, area, especially, um, don't go to the school where you're going to be even in the bottom third of the class, but certainly don't go where you're going to be in the bottom 1% or bottom 2%, um, which unfortunately, um, you know, with preferential treatment, you often get. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's not just minority students. Um, It's students who get a preference of any kind. Uh, Don't go to the school where you're going to be at the bottom of the class. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu. To learn more, your your contribution to the volume later on in the volume, the essay has that term that appears in the title of the book: dubious expediency. Where does that term come from? Who used it? What was that term used to describe? That term was actually used by Justice Stanley Mosk 
of the California Supreme Court way back in the 1970s um, in the Bakke case, which was the first big affirmative action case to reach the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, before it got to the Supreme Court of the United States, it was before the California Supreme Court. And what's interesting, I think, um, about, about Justice Mosk, um, Justice Mosk was a liberal. Um, and, you know, for, for a while in his career, you'd have to call him a liberal's liberal. Uh, he had been a judge uh, in the Superior Court in California. He'd also been the California Attorney General. Um, and at every turn in his, his career, um, he had been in favor of civil rights back in the days when it wasn't fashionable to be in favor of equality. Um, back, you know, back in the 1940s even. Uh, he was a judge at that point in the 1940s. Um, and he had ruled here in California um, in a way that made it, you know, he, he ruled in a, in, in, in a, a real estate case about the about um, covenants in real estate. There used to be, years ago, covenants. You would buy a house, uh, and when you bought the house, you would be promising that you would never sell um, to, to um, African Americans, or in some cases the covenants uh, covered Jewish Americans. Um, and he ruled those covenants to be unconstitutional under the California Constitution before the Supreme Court of the United States found them unconstitutional under the United States Constitution. Um, he did all sorts of things uh, to further civil rights. By the 1970s, he's on the California Supreme Court. Um, and when Alan Bakke uh, comes before the Supreme Court of California, Alan Bakke was a, a white male Vietnam veteran who wanted passionately to go to medical school. Uh, he was not a, a, a son of privilege. I think his father was um, a letter carrier, a mail carrier for the United States mail. Um, and he had been a medic in uh, the Vietnam War. And he applied to medical school at UC Davis. And he didn't get in. And the evidence pointed very strongly um, to his race, that he didn't get in because he was white. He just missed the cutoff. And UC Davis Medical School at the time had reserved a certain number of, of seats um, in the medical school uh, for minorities. Um, and Alan Bakke sued. And Justice Mosk and the California Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor uh, of Bakke. Unfortunately, the case went up to the United States Supreme Court, uh, but that term, a dubious expediency, uh, was Mosk. He wrote the opinion, um, and you know, like many people, um, including many conservatives today, um, he very much wanted uh, to do whatever was necessary in order to make, um, you know, to further the cause of civil rights. Uh, to further integrate African Americans into the mainstream. Uh, but he rightly looked at racial preferences and said, you know, look, uh, it's, it's, it's not so clear that this is going to do what, you know, those who favor these preferences, what they think they're going to do. 
you know, maybe, just maybe, um, it's not going to work the way they think. It's not going to further integrate African Americans into the mainstream. It'll do the opposite. Um, it will cause uh, it'll cause race to matter when we've been working so hard to make race not matter. He came up with that term. How is how is just Justice Moss treated afterwards? The, you know, there were a lot of people at the time uh, who very much favored race preferences, um, and you know, mainly students. Um, and protests gathered underneath, um, you know, the window there at the Supreme Court, large crowds uh, condemning uh, the court's decision. Um, Mosk was invited um, to give the the graduation uh, commencement speech at, um, I can't remember the school, I guess it was UC Davis, um, and there were protests. Uh, there were protests, very serious protests. Um, there was a petition uh, asking him to withdraw from that role. Uh, but Mosk, to his everlasting credit, um, refused to back down. Um, he gave the graduation speech. Uh, some students walked out um, during the speech. Uh, but as, as he put it, you know, lawsuits, lawsuits are won and lost in the courtroom, not on the streets. Um, and I think, I think that history has vindicated Justice Mosk um, that it has not turned out that racial preferences and admissions um, has helped to integrate African Americans into uh, the mainstream. In fact, it's made it more difficult, uh, not just because of mismatch, as we talked about uh, a minute ago, but for so many reasons. Um, you know, I, I've been I've been accused of, by some of my friends of being a Cassandra uh, that I've been saying for years. You know, race relations are actually going to get worse before they get better um, in this country. Um, that racial preferences uh, do not help uh, to heal wounds. Uh, in fact, they allow those wounds to fester. And you know, my my friends they call me you know, a Cassandra, and I have to point out to them, they obviously don't know their Greek mythology, you know, never lose sight of the fact that Cassandra, um, in her her predictions that things were going to get bad, she was always right. Uh, and that was the whole point of that story, that Cassandra uh, would was condemned to never be believed. But here we are in the year 2021, um, and things are worse now instead of better. Um, and until we do something to really make it true, to make race not matter, um, you know, if, if we're going to 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 deal with this issue, there's no other way to deal with it but then to to condemn race discrimination, no matter you know whose ox is being gored. The book is there's so much more to talk about in in the book with entries by John Ellis and Heather McDonald, Peter Kersenow, and and others. Uh, but but for now, that, that, that will do it. The book is A Dubious Expediency, How Race Preferences Damage Higher Education. Professor Harriet, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.